If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9 this morning, verses 27 to 34. And uh, let me again welcome back uh, JBU students. It's great to have you uh, home, as we like to think of it. Uh, I'm glad to have you here among us. Uh, we have been in, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 since uh, before Christmas. And um, we've seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles, demonstrating his authority over disease and over natural disasters and over demonic forces of darkness and even over death. Last week we saw uh, him heal the body of a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And nobody could help her. And she'd lost all her savings seeking help. And she'd gotten worse. Jesus healed her. And we saw him raise a 12-year-old girl from death to life. Now today in Matthew, in our passage, Matthew shows us two blind men and a demon-oppressed man made mute Three more desperately needy people whom Jesus helps. And Jesus can help us too. But only when we see him as he is will we hope in him as we ought. So who is this Jesus? Let's think about that from Matthew chapter 9. Beginning at verse 27. This is the word of God. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said... He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, would you be our teacher and show us your son by the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew here isn't simply pointing us to what Jesus can do for us. He is preaching to us who Jesus is. Uh, In uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, last um, of the trilogy, The the Return of the King and The Lord of the Rings, you remember Gondor, the, the kingdom of men was under siege by the forces of darkness. And it it, Gondor, had not had its rightful king on the throne to defend it. For thousands of years, it was instead governed by stewards acting like entitled placeholders who had mismanaged it and made it vulnerable. The people were attacked, 
Many died, many suffered, and nobody could heal the sick but Aragorn. Because uh, the poison of the enemy's weapons made them humanly incurable, except by one, this Aragorn, a ranger from the north. He could heal them, and when he did, one of the city's nurses recalled a legend of Gondor, which said, The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Rumor spread like wildfire. The true king of Gondor walks again. How is he known? By his healing hands. And Matthew is like that nurse preaching to us about Jesus. Matthew is saying the true king of God's kingdom is here with healing in his hands. And so we want to think about three things this morning from our passage. In the first place, the blind men. Uh, who have eyes to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, verse 27. And then the blind men seek mercy from the Messiah, and they receive it, verses 27 to 31. And then finally, I want you to notice that the religious leaders are frequently blind and mixed up about Jesus. And you see that in 32 to 34. So in the first place, I want you to see this. The blind men have eyes to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, verse 27. Verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. They see who he is. They confess who he is, the son of David. This is the first time we actually hear anyone call him this. It's not something that's been bandied about. Matthew in chapter 1 verse 1 referenced it because that's what he's going to prove. But otherwise, nobody's called Jesus the son of David up to this point. And, uh, and so it's not like people around these blind men were saying, hey, you know, if you call him the son of David, that will really get his attention. No, they are blind, but they see what other people couldn't see, what other people had missed. They don't call him son of Joseph, the carpenter's son, or son of Mary, the young woman from Bethlehem, but son of David, which is a technical title with messianic implications. They are making a messianic assertion that Jesus is the great king, great David's greater son, and rightful heir to the throne God promised. You remember King David, of course. He was about, born about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And before we glaze over and go, yeah, a thousand years, whatever. <laughs> Just reflect on a thousand years for a moment. In our day, a thousand years puts us back when Beowulf was written. It puts us back when Leif Erikson and the Vikings uh, sought to establish a settlement in the northern areas of North America some 500 years before Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. It's, uh, it's when in the American Southwest, the Pueblo people were building small cities, which are now just in ruins and tourist attractions. Well, a thousand years before Jesus... Israel's greatest king was living in a palace, but God's presence among God's people was dwelling in a portable tabernacle. 
And David determined to build a palace for God, a temple for God, since God had so richly blessed him. But God said, no, you're a man of war. You don't get to build the temple. Your son Solomon will build it. But what I will do for you is I will build you a dynasty. And you find this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you want to turn there or just listen in, God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Beginning at verse 12, he says this. When your days are fulfilled. Now this is Nathan the prophet to David because this is the God's message to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. In other words, God says, I will raise up your offspring and it's singular offspring. I will raise him up. It's not, well, you're going to be like lots of people. You're going to have a wife or, well, wives for David. And you're going to have sons and daughters and lots of descendants. And, you know, it's just going to kind of happen that one of them. No, no, no. God says, I will raise up him, a singular one, and I will establish his kingdom. Someone will come from David, raised by God, someone unique. And verse 13, it says, he shall, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Not, he will establish your kingdom, David, but I will establish his kingdom And he will have a kingdom that is his, and it will be bigger than yours, David. Verse 14, and I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now just think of that language, and think of the baptism of Jesus, where God speaks, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. And then it goes on to say this, When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Now here's the twist. He won't do the wrong, not this final son. Solomon certainly did wrong. The the line of the kings did wrong. But then you get to Jesus who was sinless. And he won't do wrong and be punished for it. He will bear the wrongs done by others. And so you think of his floggings and his beatings and his cross. But, verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, as we said, after David came Solomon, and Solomon built the temple, but the kingdom was divided north and south, Israel and Judah, after Solomon. And in the 700s, the northern ten tribes, the northern kingdom was decimated by the Assyrians and taken off and disappeared to world history. And in the 500s, the Babylonians came and destroyed the southern kingdom, Judah, and took them into exile. And the last ruler of Judah was then... And he was taken captive by the Babylonians, by the enemies of the people of God. And they killed his children and they put out his eyes so that the last thing he ever saw was the death of his own children. As his line is cut off and the kingdom disappears, the kingship disappears from the people of God. So that by the time of Jesus, nearly 500 years later... There has been no Jewish king of Israel or Judah for more than 500 years. It seems completely wiped out except for 
the promise and the prophecies. The promise was the covenant given by God to David in 2 Samuel 7. We just read it. And the prophecies we read nearly every Advent. And we did earlier uh, just uh, weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 35. What will it be like when God comes to save his people? Isaiah 35. What will be the fruit of his coming? Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6. Listen. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You get it? Matthew is trying to persuade us that the prophets are being fulfilled. The son of David is here and he is the Lord. God with us in the flesh. And how do we know? The eyes of the blind are opened. The ear of the deaf unstopped. The lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy and the blind men saw it and so they called him son of David they may have lost their physical sight maybe they never had it but they had spiritual eyes to see better than most they see what others do not see and they saw that Jesus then could heal them since he's the Messiah, the eternal king, the true ruler of God's true kingdom. And so I just ask you this question. When you look at Jesus, do you see what the blind men see? Or do you look at Jesus the way that the Pharisees did? Now that's the first thing I want you to see. The blind men see he's the Messiah. Now the second thing is, what do they do with that information? <laughs> Right? Verses 27 to 31. What do they do? Well, uh, Jesus passed on from there. The blind men followed him crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. There's this crowd that's been following Jesus probably because of all the miracles he's done. He's raised the daughter of Jairus. News has spread throughout that whole region. Undoubtedly, as the crowds followed him, the blind men have latched themselves onto that crowd, tagging along, as it were, getting into the house where Jesus is. They're convinced he's the Messiah, so they do what? They say, have mercy on us. Take pity on us. And notice here that they aren't demanding what they think is their right. They are pleading for what they need in their helplessness. They see what they need. And look how they describe it. They don't just say, give us our sight. They say, have mercy on us. Mercy, not rights. We can be so taken in by the victim culture in our day. Nothing, it seems, gives you more rights in our day and in our society than being the victim or persuading others that you are the victim. That gives you almost absolute rights in our society. Nobody, it seems, has more rights than a victim. So the thinking goes. But they don't come to him for their rights. They don't come to him for justice. However desirable true justice is, what they know they need from him is mercy. The kindness that doesn't give them what they deserve. And then Jesus asked them a question to confirm their faith in him. Do you believe that I am able to do this? He knows what they want. Healing, of course. And they say, yes, Lord. And he touches their eyes. And according to your faith, he says, may it be done to you and their eyes are open now we've got to here oppose 
those who say that their blindness was evidently self-induced, that these men were blind because they did not believe and therefore Jesus could only give them their sight once they believed or after they believed. In saying that the blindness is their fault, the fault of their unbelief, the folks who say that kind of thing lay a heavy and unjust burden on the backs of people who are blind or have disabilities or are born um, with less than what we think is perfect human wholeness. Jesus nowhere says that they are blind because they don't believe in him. There's nothing in the text to say that their blindness was without physical cause, but had some sort of spiritual cause due to their sinful unbelief. And furthermore, it's clear that these men, in fact, actually do believe prior to their receiving their sight, right? They believed when Jesus was on the road and they called out to him and they still weren't healed. They believed when they went into the house seeking his mercy before he healed them. They already have believed but have not received. Jesus isn't getting them to do something they aren't already doing. He is confirming that they in fact believe and he's doing it as a testimony against the Pharisees who have eyes but do not see. Well, these blind men clearly saw better than the Pharisees. And so now Jesus uh, heals them. And why does he touch their eyes instead of just saying something like, be opened? I have no idea. We don't know. Doesn't say. Perhaps this was another display of his compassion, like when he touched the leper and others to encourage them. But clearly his word and not simply the touch is authoritative. According to your faith, may it be done to you. And then it is done. It's based on his word. Now here, that doesn't mean that he gives to them or promises them that in proportion to their faith, may it be done. As if to say, if you believe a little, you'll get 20-50 vision and need glasses and reading glasses. But if you believe a lot, well, then you'll get 20-20 vision and you'll be just fine. (laughs) That is not what Jesus is saying. What does he mean then? Since you believe your request is granted. That's what he means. I'm doing this for you as part of my ministry as your Messiah in whom you believe. That's not a promise of immediate results when the rest of us ask for mercy to give sight and physical blindness it was a promise of immediate result for them which they had in him the promise to us of course is that he hears us and he will answer our prayer better than we've prayed it but not perhaps as immediately as we might ask but at the resurrection our eyes will work better than they ever have And we will see clearly, though now we see as through a glass darkly. Notice that they get healing, though, and then they get a command. Jesus sternly warned them, see that nobody knows about it. Don't go out and blab about this. Why? Because if you go out and say that the king is here, he healed us, people are going to get the wrong idea about this king. Because people thought that the Messiah to come was not going to come with mercy, but with military might. 
not with healing, but with political strength. They expected the Messiah to fight off the Romans, win the economic and political freedom of the Jewish people. They expect him to lead an army in victory. They didn't understand that the king came to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many by dying on the cross for our sins. So Jesus says, keep quiet because the people are looking for the wrong thing from the Messiah. Yet, of course, they couldn't hold it in and it's hard to fault them for that. Uh, what a dramatic change of circumstances for the better to have their eyes restored. And his fame, they spread his fame through all that district. I wonder what we would have done in a similar circumstances. Surely, surely Jesus knows that some people who know them well are going to know these guys can see. I think what Jesus is saying, but don't go spreading it everywhere. But that's precisely what they did. And uh, so let's just pause here and reflect on this. The miraculous giving of physical sight proves that Jesus is the Messiah in accordance with the fruit to be looked for from Isaiah 35. The blind will see. And we might say this as well. Physical blindness is a picture of a more serious spiritual blindness that we are all born with. Like like physical leprosy in the Old Testament and the uncleanness it brought is a picture of the greater spiritual leprosy we have that makes us unclean spiritually before the presence of God. These are physical pictures of spiritual things for which we can't do anything for ourselves. Spiritual blindness we can't fix for ourselves. We can't cure ourselves. Only God alone can do it. This was the point Jesus was making to Nicodemus, you remember, the the Pharisee who came to Jesus at night in John 3. And he acknowledged that Jesus was a great teacher. And Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus has no idea what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus reiterates it. And Jesus is surprised that a Pharisee, a teacher in Israel, doesn't know this. That unless you are born again or born from above or, or given a new heart by God or given spiritual life by God, being born of the Spirit, unless that happens, you don't have eyes to see the kingdom of God. You can't see that Jesus is the king who can save you until God first works in your heart and faith is born and you look out and say, save me. I'm in trouble without you. Do you have those eyes? We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. That hymn isn't boasting. It's not saying, look at me. I've got eyes and you don't. Look what I did for myself. (laughs) That isn't what it's doing. It is boasting in amazing grace. The gift of God by the Spirit of God. Have you received the gift of sight by this Messiah? 
Have you asked him for mercy? That's the second thing I want you to see. And finally, we see in the third place, in the, in the second miraculous event, verses 32 to 34, we see the religious leaders, or, or that religious leaders, are frequently blind and terribly mixed up about Jesus. Verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man was, who was mute was brought to him. Now the Greek word for mute there can mean deaf or mute or deaf mute, deaf and mute. It's, it's used in all the varieties of ways. If you're born deaf, speaking, I'm told, is terribly difficult to learn. Uh, so usually there's a deafness and a muteness associated, an inability to communicate verbally because you've never been able to hear. But they, of course, can be distinct conditions. You can have one or the other. Here, the physical impairment is at least muteness, if not muteness and deafness. And we know that because the healing that came brought the ability to speak. Now, notice also that this impairment was the result of demonic oppression. The man was demon-oppressed and therefore was mute. Now look, those two things don't always go together. However much some skeptics want to say, see, look how backward those ancient people were. They just didn't understand modern medicine and what was really wrong with people. And they just said demons were behind everything. Well, no, clearly that's not the case. Now, the skeptics would say, no, no, it is the case, and therefore you can't trust these people about anything they said about Jesus. They're, they're just uh, fantastic in their imaginations. They, they have no concept of reality. But, of course, the skeptical position isn't true. After all, the blind men didn't have demonic oppression. There's no mention of that. They were blind without the devil involved. And, in fact... To add to the argument, God himself takes ownership of such conditions. When Moses, you remember in Exodus chapter 4, complained, when God sent him out to lead God's people, he complained, but but Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I? The Lord, God takes responsibility. Now here in Matthew, of course, a subordinate responsibility is the demon oppression. But that's by the permission of God or it never would have happened. So God ultimately is authoritative over it, though a demon has been made use of, so to speak, given reins, so to speak, to bring this about. And Jesus simply takes care of it. He just, we'd like to know more, wouldn't we? We'd love the details on how all this went down and some great theological explanation. We just, we just have from Matthew, yeah, Jesus kicked the demon out, he cast him away, and the man could speak. He had no trouble. Jesus had no trouble with this underling of the kingdom of darkness because he has authority over demons and disease. 
Matthew is more interested in not so much the healing itself as the reaction of those who witnessed. And so he turns to the reaction of the crowds. Do you see that? And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. It had never been seen, of course, because the Messiah had not yet arrived until now. There had been messianic pretenders before Jesus and in the day of Jesus. People who could tell us a good story, spin a good yarn, right, impress a crowd. People with personal charisma and attractiveness and seemed worth following. And they could gather followers. And there were all kinds of pretend messiahs. But none of them could do what Jesus did. The eyes of the blind, he opened The ear of the deaf, he unstopped. The tongue of the mute, he made sing for joy. And the crowds were amazed. And they said, have they seen this ever before in Israel? We never. It must be that the kingdom of God is here and the king is here. But by contrast, you have the reaction of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, of course, can be counted on to get it wrong. And what's their reaction? Well, they have an explanation. And it isn't that Jesus didn't do these things, right? They don't say, no, 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 none of this stuff ever happened. You're making it up. No, no. They felt threatened by the fact that Jesus could do these things. Even though they had every reason to deny that he did them. But they couldn't deny them, so they offered an alternative explanation for them. Verse 34, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. The devil made him do it, is their argument. He's in league with the prince of darkness. In other words, Jesus isn't the good guy you think he is. He's a bad guy. He isn't on the side of the angels. He's on the side of the demonic. And where the crowds were amazed and gave God glory, the Pharisees only saw the devil. They will not accept that he is from God, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the Messiah, the son of David. They will not. And so they say he's not messianic, he's demonic. And they did this because, of course, they felt threatened by Jesus. They wanted, the Pharisees were the leaders of the reform movement. They were the leaders of the reformation of their generation. To bring people back to the scriptures and back to believing and back to obedience. They wanted the mantle of being the reformers. They wanted the crowds to cling on their words and teaching. And now along comes Jesus doing things they could not do. And rather than embrace him and follow him, they sought to destroy him. First, by explaining away his abilities. Then later, by doing away with him upon the cross, right? And so what are they doing? And this is where I want to close up shop as we think about what is it they're actually doing. They are twisting the truth about Jesus for their own sake. And I want to say a few things about that. This is a danger that every teacher in the church is tempted by. The Apostle James actually warns us in James 3 that that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, he says. 
And down through the ages, of course, on into today, many stumble. And we are all prone to stumble. Now, there are so many examples, it's hard to know where to begin. But, I mean, in the news, of course, is uh, Emmanuel Cleaver, United Methodist minister, former mayor of Kansas City, a U.S. congressman who made headlines recently. Perhaps you saw this as he opened um, a session of Congress with prayer and closed his prayer saying, Amen, and a woman. And of course, that made a lot of people scratch their head. A lot of people mocked him, piled on him. He, was, he explained himself this way. He was calling attention to the contributions of women in Congress. Now, that's an awkward way to do it. And a theologically bizarre way to do it. But that's his explanation. Okay, fine. But have you noticed how much less concern there has been Not that he would say amen and a woman, but that he would actually offer his prayer as a ostensibly Christian minister to who? To Brahman, the god of the Hindus, by a congressman who's been ordained a Christian minister who's clearly left the Bible behind as he sought to rally the crowd to his cause by his prayer. Then as a different example, uh, many of you are familiar with the mainline denomination PCUSA. Now I was in the PCUSA when this happened, not as an ordained minister, but as a youth director, so I think I could share this story. It's no surprise and it's public knowledge that uh, back in the 90s and since a time or two at the General Assembly meetings, don't, and don't, don't mistake PCUSA for PCA. Uh, PCA is what we are here. And um, in, in any case, at, at a General Assembly meeting, they held a worship service in which they prayed to the goddess Sophia. Unsurprisingly, yet of course sadly, that, goes hand, that kind of thinking goes hand in hand with another position they've held, which is they're not even sure that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world that everybody needs to hear about. So you, you introduce the goddess Sophia and suddenly Jesus doesn't quite have the importance you think he might. But okay, fine. Well, that's outside there. Let's just say, let's just put it that way. What about a little closer to home among those who call themselves evangelicals? In the last few years, a group of evangelicals, some scholars and pastors alike, have sought to ground their particular view of the way a husband and wife should relate to one another in headship and submission, using the words of Ephesians 5, but grounding it in a false view of Christ known as the eternal subordination of the Son, or ESS for short. It created all kinds of controversy. Why? Because basically to win adherence to their certain perspective on marriage, they compromised their view of Jesus. What did they do? They reduced the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son, to something less than being the same in substance, equal in power and glory with the first person of the Godhead. 
And they did it to win an argument, to build an argument, a theological argument, a Christological argument about wives submitting to their husbands. And in doing so, they made the Son of God out to be less than true and eternal God. Ask me about it later if you want to know more about that controversy. But but the point is this. We who teach, who feed the flock of God, the word of God, we are always tempted to compromise biblical truth about Jesus in order to keep or increase those who listen to us. And woe to us if we do that. Who are we to do that? We're being just like the Pharisees if we do that. Twisting the truth about God so that we and others don't have to deal with Jesus as he truly is. Now let me just say, maybe you're not a teacher in the church, but aren't you tempted this way too? I think like all of us are tempted in other ways, right? We may tell ourselves, God doesn't see what we do in secret. He's blind. Or God doesn't care what we do in secret. He has no heart. So then we don't have to come to Jesus for safety from God's judgment. Because sin is not a big deal. Or we may tell ourselves, God is mute. And then we act like he hasn't spoken. And so we don't need to obey. Or we dismiss Jesus as merely human and not divine and the God-man. So we don't feel compelled to worship him. All of it begins with twisting who Jesus is. To suit our fancies. And if we're teachers, to tickle the ears of our hearers. To gather them to us and not to the true Jesus. And so I ask you, do you agree with the Pharisees about Jesus? Was Jesus the devil's partner? Then you must believe that Jesus was doing good that evil might come. You must believe that he healed people in order to deceive people, in order to lead them astray and send them to hell. Or do you agree with the blind man that he's the son of David, the promised Messiah, king and ruler and the king of mercy? Then like the blind men, call upon him for mercy. And if you've been like the Pharisees, call upon him for mercy and he will have mercy on you and you will find that he gifts to you spiritual life in death, eyes to see, ears to hear, and even a mouth to speak his praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great King and Savior. May we see him clearly and know him truly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.